So I want to begin with a quick reflection on a detail in the story of Samuel, specifically Hannah's grief and the way in which Eli misreads it as a way of framing what else I'm going to say about the the text from track two. So first Samuel, for those who are following the lectionary, first the first Samuel reading is in track one. The Old Testament reading for track two is Daniel 12, 1 to 3. I'll, I'll say something about that in just a moment. But I'm probably, in this reflection, I'm going to engage actually all the texts from both tracks. I, only a line or so from Psalm 16, but I'm, I'm going to engage them all. And I, I think you'll see, I think you'll see why. But I, I don't want to talk about the entire story. The reading is 1 Samuel 1, 4 to 20. I don't want to talk about it all. I want to zero in on the detail of Eli misreading Hannah's prayer. So this, this is the way it reads. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Right. So remember that detail. He's, he's seated watching her. And she is deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. So Eli is sitting, watching her as she prays. She's weeping bitterly. She's making this vow. And as she continues to pray, Eli, we're told, is watching her mouth, right? He's observing her. And Hannah is praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Now, remember, as those of you have been following track one, Samuel follows directly, these readings from Samuel follow directly the readings from Ruth, right? And of course, canonically, that's that holds for all of us. and. Here, Eli is an astounding counterfigure to Boaz. So Boaz is the one who notices, right? He recognizes Ruth. And in, throughout Ruth, characters recognize one another. They notice what is happening. Naomi notices Ruth. Boaz notices Ruth. Ruth notices Naomi, etc. But here, Eli has none of that wisdom, right? And of course, He's, he's losing sight, and by the end of the story is entirely sightless. And, and so he is a kind of a caricatured picture of the, the foolish priest, or the priest who's malpracticing, right? who's damaging those around him because he's failing to recognize what is actually right in front of his face. And so... He's sitting there watching her pray, is offended by what he takes to be her drunken spectacle, and rebukes her for it. And she says, no, no, I'm deeply troubled. I'm praying out of the vexation of my spirit. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. And I think, again, there's so much here about a kind of warning to those of us who are in ministry about how easily we can misread what's taking place in front of us. You know, Jesus' line about the, before you try to take a speck out of someone else's eye or a splinter out of their eye, you know, remove the tree from your own, the plank from your own. 
I think one way of hearing that text is to say you there might not even be a speck in the other person's eye. It may only seem to be there because of the obstruction that's in your own vision. And so, be that as it may, I think what's happening here is Eli's sightlessness, his his lack of vision causes him to misread what is happening in front of him. He reads it as a spectacle, but in fact, she's pouring out her, her soul to the Lord. And I want to bring that to bear on the other readings, because the other readings, at least in track two, are about what we think of as the coming of the Lord, right? We think of them, you know, the Daniel text speaks of the, the day in which there will be a time of anguish, which has never occurred before. But at that time, in, in that day of anguish, your people, Daniel's people, will be delivered and everyone who is written in the book will be delivered. And of course, if you were raised as I was raised, that's a reference to the book of life, right? Which is like quite literally a record God keeps in which those who are in good standing with him have their names written there. And in that day, the text, the Daniel text tells us, many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the, the brightness of the sky, and those who, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so the Daniel text reads like a word about the end of history, the coming of the Lord, the last judgment. And the same holds for Hebrews 10, which ends with a, that familiar line about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but continue to gather together. Don't neglect it, as some do, but encourage one another, provoke one another to good deeds, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And again, for many of us, the day, the approaching day, is a reference to the coming of the Lord, the end of history, the last judgment that opens out on eternal life or eternal damnation. And then the gospel, Mark 13, 1 to 8, is Jesus in the temple, and much like Eli, sitting opposite and observing what is happening. As we saw in the gospel last week, he's sitting opposite the treasury and observing this woman who gives. But unlike Eli, he recognizes the truth of what's happening there, the, the full truth and nothing, nothing but the truth. Here he's sitting opposite the temple, and the disciples are impressed. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus begins to speak to them about the coming destruction. All of this will be thrown down. Not, lo not one stone will be left on another. And then Peter, James, John, and Andrew take him aside to ask how these things will be, how, how they will come to be. And Jesus gives this warning that, again, all of us, or many of us at least, are going to hear as a word about the end of history, the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the second coming, etc., and the last judgment. This is what he says. Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. So I I think what what I want to stress here is the ways in which I, I think we've misread these texts in the same way that Eli misread Hannah's prayer. We've we've seen these 
we've misread them in, in two ways, at least, or two interrelated ways. One is we've we've read them as only about the end of history, something that's in the near or distant future. And more fundamentally, we've read them as texts of terror, as texts that are threats about the God who's coming and when he comes, he's coming in wrath. And I, I certainly know that's how my imagination was shaped. I mean, as a, as a little kid, I had nightmares, nightmares that I still remember vividly about the rapture, about the coming of Jesus, about being left behind. I, I was terrified by the thought of the presence of, of God and terrified by the thought that the, the coming of the Lord, the rap, as I understood at the time, the rapture would catch me off guard and that I wouldn't be ready, and that that would mean hell for me. And I, nothing could be further from the truth, right? So I, I'm going to spend my time talking mostly about how these texts relate to the, the Lord's coming now, here and now, and not at some point down the timeline. But before I get to that, let me just underscore, and I, I know we're all on the same page here, but let me just underscore that we have to understand that the coming of the Lord is the hope of all of our hopes, right? It's the thing we desire and every good thing that we desire. The coming of God is, is not to be dreaded. It's not to be feared in that sense. In fact, the fear of the Lord, what it means to fear the Lord is that no other fear can claim me, right? Because I fear the Lord, no other fear really threatens me. It's not that I ignore the threat of sickness and suffering and betrayal, my own sins, the coming of death, the attack of the enemy, all of those are, are very real threats, but they have no ultimacy in my life. They have they they do not have primacy in my life. They they do not hold sway over my heart and mind because I fear the Lord. Right? So the fear of the Lord is precisely what frees me from all other fears. That said, we we absolutely have to come in confidence to every moment that what we need is the coming of the Lord, right? More than anything else, what we need is the coming of the Lord. So when that comes clear, when we're absolutely fundamentally convinced of that and convicted in that way, that the coming of God is what we long for and that the coming of God never violates anyone or anything, but fulfills and gives life and brings peace and joy and goodness, then we can start to understand that the promise is not just something we're looking forward to, although that's also true, but it's something we're looking forward to and it's already here at hand, right? So let me let me try to unpack that just a bit. So I, I don't think it's right to think of the coming of the Lord as something that's further down the timeline from where we are right now, right? As some of you have heard me say before, the coming of God in that sense, the appearing of Jesus, the day that is approaching, is something that happens to time, not something that happens in time. It happens to the whole timeline, not just at a point on the timeline. So to put it just as bluntly as I can, the coming of Jesus is as close to my past as it is to my future. Now, of course, the way I live, the way that I experience time means that I can only meaningfully talk about it in in terms of a future event. Because again, I'm situated in time and the future is unfolding before me in a way that the past does not quite, but not so for God, right? And, and the coming of God is something 
that is affecting time itself and all creatures, including me and my whole existence. It's not one event among others on a timeline, right? So it, that that's, I think, absolutely crucial. Once we understand that, then we understand that the Lord's coming is always at hand. And there is a way in which there is a coming that happens to all things in, in culmination and brings all things up into fullness, right? So, you know, you see this like in, in first John, you know, beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is, right? Or first Corinthians 13, that talks about right now we see through a glass darkly, but there is coming a time in which we will see him face to face. So there, there is certainly this expectation of an event that has not happened yet. But the key point is that that event that has not happened yet is not one thing further down the timeline, but is something that happens to the whole timeline and therefore is in another way already happening to me. So the thing that has not happened yet, the appearance of Jesus, has already happened actually in another way. It is happening. It's continually happening. And it, the, the coming of the Lord is is always at hand, right? It's it's here and it's not yet here. It's happened and it's not yet happened. And so there's hope, as Paul will say in Romans, hope that is seen is not yet hope. And we hope for the salvation of God. The day of the Lord is nearer, he says later in Romans. The day of the Lord is nearer than when you believed. The, the day that brings your salvation, it's nearer. But that's a way of talking that's necessary because of how we experience time. In fact, that day is is already here. God is already at hand, right? And Jesus is constantly underscoring that point, right? The kingdom of God is among you. The, the kingdom of God is already broken in. It's it's already impinging on on your life. So this this I think is is critical. Once we see that, once we know that God is good and that there's nothing to fear because we fear the Lord and we know the goodness of God and we know the endless kind of resourcefulness of God in bringing about good in good ways. And once we understand that the coming of the Lord is not something further down the timeline, but already here, already at hand, once we know that, then these texts read very differently. And, and so I want to come back to them now with that in mind and think about what they, what they might mean. I think let's, let's go to the Hebrews text first, and then I want to, I want to come back to the gospel and then Hannah's prayer. So uh, let's start toward the end, verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So notice, again and again, the writer is, is calling us to confidence. We have confidence. We have boldness. We have a true heart. We have full assurance of faith. Our conscience has been purified, just as our bodies have. And so let's hold fast to that confidence. Like, and 
we can hold fast to it because the one who has promised is faithful, right? We can hold fast to it, not because we know we are faithful, but because we know God is faithful. And because we have that absolute confidence in the endless resourcefulness of God, the infinite creativity of God, and the endless goodness, the pure goodness of God, we can find ways to provoke one another to live lovingly, to do good, and to meet together in ways that bring about encouragement, that empower and uplift and propel people out into the life that they're called to live, the life of God for the sake of their neighbors. We can do that because we we know the one who has promised is faithful, right? And it's it's that that leads up to this line that we should do this more and more as we see the day approaching. Now, the, the way that I always heard this text read, and I don't think it's just flatly wrong, is that there is coming a point on the timeline described in Mark 13 and other texts in which the end of history is more and more obvious, right? And so we look at the signs of the times and we realize, oh, the day is coming nearer, so we should meet more often and we should meet with more intensity. But I, I, I think that that's, again, not entirely wrong because there is a sense in which the, the coming of God is something we long for. And in that way is something like what we look toward when we look toward the future. But again, to repeat myself, the coming of the Lord is not one more thing in my future. It's not just like, you know, tomorrow the family has has a plan, has a trip planned to see the in-laws, to see my in-laws, Julie's mom and dad, and her brothers who've come in for a visit. Like that's in my future. And then on Thursday, I have to teach a class in the Revelation course. I have to, I have to give a talk on on chapter 8 of Revelation. That's in my future. The coming of the Lord is not like one of those things. It's analogous to them, but it's it's infinite, right? And it's eternal. And so it's not just one more thing on the timeline ahead of me. And that means that the day is already here. So what, what does this mean then to talk about let's encourage one another, let's meet together, let's provoke one another to, to love and good deeds as we see the day approaching? This, this I think, is the point. You, you're getting together and your confidence needs to make it so that you're more and more recognizing how the kingdom is already present. That you're, you're like Boaz, you're able to see this is it. So that each Sunday, when we gather in the liturgy, for the liturgy, we should know this is the approaching of the day. Like, this is it. This is the light shining. And and here we are in it. Here we are living it. And as we move through the liturgy toward the presence of Jesus in the preached word, toward the presence of Jesus in the meal that we share, and we move toward that moment in which we become the presence of Jesus sent out into the world, like that is the day approaching, right? That That is the coming of the day. And when we recognize that, when we see in the, in the preached word, in the communion of saints, in the mission, the sending out in, into the work of ministry, when we recognize that that is the day, the day that the Lord has made, then we can do our work in confidence. Right? So the, the, the day approaching is, again, not a statement about tomorrow, not a statement about something down the timeline, but a statement about something that's happening right here that I need to notice. 
It's happening within this time. So the day of the Lord is something that's happening to time as I experience it. So if we if we think of it like that, some of you will have heard that, that kind of distinction between like Kairos time and Kronos time, right? So there's like chronological time is is ordinary time in in the sense, not liturgically, but like time as we experience it moment to moment, like scientific time, measurable time. Whereas Kairos is the inbreaking of eternity, right? The, the ways in which God's presence happens to time and, and alters it for us, right? And there's so much to say about that. But let me just, for now, skip over all of that that's occurring to me and, and stick with this point that we need to recognize that the day is approaching within every moment of each one of our days, and, and including the liturgy, but not not only the liturgy, but also the liturgy after the liturgy, right? So once we've left the gathering and we're out in the world going about our lives, we need to know that there the day is approaching there, right? Each encounter we have, each person we meet, the day is approaching. And not only is the day approaching, but we become the approaching day. Right? And this that brings us back to the Daniel text. Remember what is said, that in that day, right, in that day, many who are asleep shall awake, right? So like in Romans, this is exactly what Paul says, right? Awake, sleeper, because the coming of the Lord is near. Awake. Like, this should this should startle you, not, not frighten you, not, not generate anxiety in you, but stir you, right? Arouse you so that you are ready to live, as he says, with the brightness of stars. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the, the, the key is recognizing that you and I are the day approaching, or at least we should be and can be. That we, we can embody the presence of God and body forth the presence of God in such a way that we are speaking the word of God. We are the hands of God. We are the presence of God to the people who are who are near us. Our embrace can be God's embrace. Our listening can be God's listening. Our countenance can be God's countenance. And we can be and are called to be the approaching day. And we can do that when we understand that it's the faithfulness of God and the endless goodness of God. As I've said many times already in this talk, the, the kind of endless resourcefulness of God to bring about good. Once we are fully convinced of that, then we do, we shine like stars. And that's, I think, what we're called to. Uh, one, more, one more point to make here, which may take some time, so don't think that I'm, I'm wrapping up, but I, I do want to focus on one more detail. And that is, there is a way in which the coming of the Lord, even though it does not violate us, it does unsettle the world as we know it. It does bring about the kinds of change that disrupts and in some way, in some sense, is violent in that things are altered dramatically, but it never violates, right? It never undoes our humanity. It never destroys the integrity of our personhood even though it might shatter what we imagined we should be. It might shatter our dreams, but it doesn't, it doesn't alter any good, right? It only fulfills the good. 
And so with that in mind, let's come back to the gospel for just a moment and Jesus warning that these large stones, these great buildings will be thrown down. Right. And again, I don't want to read that, even though I think there's some way in which it was true for the disciples, there was in their future, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And in some way, Jesus is speaking of that historical fact, right? This is a prophetic moment, certainly. And there is some sense in which in our future as human beings, there will be destruction, right? There, the Down the timeline, who knows, hopefully in the distant future, but who knows, there are these kinds of events that, that are going to happen to all civilizations, right? And all of that, I think, is true. I don't think that, though, is that exhausts the truth of what Jesus is saying. I think that he is also talking about the coming, that the, the coming in its fullness, the culmination of all the comings of the Lord, in which everything, the appearance of the world, the way that, that Scripture will talk about it, the Church Fathers will talk about it, is that the appearance of things will be taken away and the truth of things revealed. So I think he's prophesying that as well. So there, there are multiple reference here, like the, the truth is multi-layered. But I think he is also talking about the ways in which the coming day breaks down the things we have built, the temples we have made, that, that need to be broken down in order to make room for what God is doing. So let me, let me see if I can articulate this differently, maybe make it a little clearer. So I, Bernard of Clairvaux, and this is, this is pretty typical for the church fathers as well. We'll talk about the coming of the Lord as something that has happened. Jesus was here, we can say. And it's something that will happen. Jesus is, in a sense, coming. He's appearing. He will appear. So it's something that shall be true. But it's also something that is happening now, right? So, so Bernard will talk about the three comings of the Lord. There's the coming in the past, in which he conquers sin. There's the coming in the future, in a sense. And there's the coming in the present, right? All, all of those have to be have to be said at once. And those are all actually one advent, right? That's one appearance that's unfolding until it culminates in the appearance in which God, in the fullness of his glory, acts upon all creatures and brings them up into life through judgment. And destroys death and empties death by bringing life to all things. So all of that is being spoken of, I think, in this passage. But I want to focus specifically on the ways in which the day approaches now, here in this moment. And in the coming of the Lord, the the temples we have made are are often thrown down. But I, I was talking with, with Bill before I recorded today, and, and he brought up what I think is exactly right, that we have to remember that this this prediction about the the breaking down, the throwing down of the temple, is being said by the same Jesus who cleanses the temple because he affirms its purpose, right? He affirms that it is it is meant to be a house of prayer for all people. This is not Jesus is not anti-temple, right? He's against the uses we've made of the temple. And he understands that the temple we have made, the uses we've made of the temple, must be brought down. But insofar as the temples we have made witness to the temple we cannot make, they are good. Right? Insofar as 
what we make bears witness to what God is making, it can be good, right? So he's not he's not anti-temple. He's he's affirming what's right and good, and calling into question, bringing into the light of judgment, what we've done that is that is not good, right? And as Bill said, I, and again, I think this is right. You you get some sense of that with what Jesus says about wars, rumors of wars, and so on. That these are the beginnings of birth pangs, right? That this is the beginning of a birth, and of course, in some ways, that's a that's an image of pain. That's an image that's threatening, especially in the ancient world. Of course, giving birth was incredibly dangerous, right? And even now, it's it can be. But certainly then, it was unbelievably fraught, right? That moment, the woman and the child are both at incredible risk in the moment of birth. So yes, there is a way in which this image of the coming of God bringing about the pangs of birth is intense. It is, in a sense, threatening. But you have to remember who is being brought to birth, right? This Christ is being born here. Christ is crowning. The day is approaching. And so we have we have to remember, back to the point that, that I made, and I, again, I know we all agree on this, but God is good. God is only good. God is infinitely good. Good without restriction. Good to the nth and beyond. Right? God is better than we can imagine. Whatever we imagine about the goodness of God is nothing compared to what that goodness actually is. And so when the coming of God happens as God is coming into our lives, again, not only in that ultimate culmination that happens to all things, but even now, even here, in this conversation you and I are having, or what's going to happen when you've stopped this and turned to something else, to your neighbor, to your friend, to your partner, to your child, to your parent, whatever it is, wherever you turn next, like the day is approaching there. You are the day approaching and the day is approaching you. And that is a moment of birthing. That is a moment in which the pangs of birth are happening. The, the conversation you have that may seem like a throwaway conversation, just a casual chat. The day is right there. The day is about to dawn. There, there's a, a contraction that's ready to happen if you attend to it, if you will be aware. And unlike Eli, read the situation rightly. Recognize that this is not just another casual conversation. This is not just another throwaway moment. This is a moment in which the day of the Lord is crowning. The, the, the day of the Lord is, is appearing and attend to that, right? Again, unlike Eli, recognize the moment for, for what it is. So that in mind, let me, two last words on this same theme. One is the song of Hannah, which of course, Mary takes up in Luke 1, and and does her own kind of re remixing of it. I encourage you to read that on your own. And the, the differences and the similarities are are all striking. But let me just underscore one point from from Hannah's song. Here here it is. First Samuel two one to ten. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
the Lord knows us. He weighs our action because he knows us. He recognizes us. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. That's a key line. Not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Astonishing song, of course. But a few details to, to notice. One is, it's not by might that God prevails. We don't prevail by might, and God does not prevail by might. The Sermon on the Mount tells us the way in which God prevails. The cross tells us the way in which God prevails. And so, once we know that, once we recognize that the cross is the prevailing of God, it's the prevailing goodness of God that overcomes all that is not good, we understand what it means for his adversaries to be shattered. We understand what it means for him to judge the ends of the earth. We understand what it means for him to give strength and to exult. And that means that all of this description about the action of God, you know, he the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, feeble are girded with strength. The fool have to hire out for bread, but those who are hungry become fat with spoil and so on. The Lord kills and brings to life. All of that is, is not a description of two things God is doing, you know, the violence to some and the healing to others, or feeding some and starving others, or drawing some near and, and shoving others away. All of that is being described as what has happened to each of us all the time. Right? So in the coming of the Lord, all that is in me that needs to be broken is broken. And all that is in me that needs to be girded with strength is girded with strength. All that is in me that needs to be starved is starved, sent away hungry. And all that in me that needs to be fed is fed, made fat with spoil. What in me that needs to be put to death, lust, greed, evil ambition, all of that is put to death. And what's brought to life is my humanity, my personhood. And what's thrown down is what I've imagined I should be, what I've made, the, the temple I have made or the use I have made of the temple, that is thrown down so that what can be exalted, what can be built up is my own life as a temple, right? So whatever God is tearing down, whatever he's throwing down, it's only to make room for what he's building up, right? Like it, he's clearing away the, the lie the darkness, the, the corruption, in order to make room for what's right and good and holy. And that, that's what the coming of the Lord does for you. And that's what you are doing for others when you are the coming of the Lord. So that brings us to Psalm 16. And I want you to hear this as a statement, not just about God, and of course it is that, but also about you as the coming of the Lord, as the approaching day in the lives of others. 
comfort. So when, when the psalmist says, protect me, O God, for I take refuge in you, I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my good above all other. You need to hear that as that's true of your relation to God, but it's also true because of your relation to God of others about you, right? It's true about you, right? It's true that you are the refuge of God for others. You are the protection. You, you are the good that they need. All my delight is upon the godly that are in the land, upon those who are noble among the people. Those who run after other gods shall have their troubles multiplied. Their libations of blood I will not offer, nor take the names of their gods upon my lips. O Lord, you are my portion and my cup. It is you who uphold my lot. So what's happening here, you're being described. And you're being described as the kind of presence that frees others from their idolatries, from their the crafts that the crafted images that have misled them about themselves, about their neighbors, about, about God. You can be God's presence in such a way that they're freed from those, from living the life of that kind of sacrifice, that kind of false worship that falsifies them, that makes them false. You can be their portion and their cup. You can uphold them. You can be the pleasant space, the, the, the broad space in which others find the Lord. That's what it means to be the temple, right? You are the space, the broad space that God opens up full of the breadth of the spirit so that others can encounter Christ, encounter the goodness of God in its fullness. My heart therefore is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body shall rest in hope for you will not abandon me to the grave nor let your Holy One see the pit. You will show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And again, at the risk of over overstating it or repeating myself into a, an annoying number of times, this is not just a statement about God. You can say to God about who he is to you. It's a statement that others can say about you because of who you are in Christ, who Christ is in you, because of who you have been made to be. You, you can show people the path of life. You can bring the fullness of joy and the pleasures of God to, to bear in people's lives. So I was talking with Jordan Wood this week, who's a, become a good friend, becoming a good friend. And of course, I love his work on Maximus the Confessor. If you've not, if you've not been following him on social media, I encourage you to. Jordan Daniel Wood is his name. Jordan and I were talking specifically about what Maximus says about prayer and that one thing led to another led to another. And, and Jordan said something that, that literally took my breath away. And he said on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not only talking to the father. In fact, he's not primarily talking to the father. He's primarily talking to the human beings around him who were called to be like God, but have forsaken their calling. They've, they've rejected what it is that God wants them to be. Instead of being the day, they are the night. They are the coming of darkness and not light. They are the coming of judgment and not mercy. They're, they're the coming of, of hate and, and not compassion. And what grieves Jesus is not a failure, is not the failure of his father. Of course, there is no failure in his father. What grieves Jesus is our failure to be like the father to open our arms 
to the one who is our life in the moment of need. So I, I think I think that is a place to end. I, I, I think it underscores all the things I've been trying to say here and all the things I think these texts are saying to us. I'm trying to say what I think these texts are saying. And, and so let, let me just let that rest. I'll add only this, this prayer. God, let us feel the weight of that. Let us feel the weight of being called to be your people. But let us not feel it as burdensome, as crushing. Let us feel the weight of it as something that actually lifts us. Let us feel the weight of it as something that gives us life. Like you are the God who does not break even a bruised reed and who does not snuff out even a smoldering wick. You breathe and bring our embers to life back to a, a raging fire. So God, I pray that we will feel all of this, feel the weight of it, recognize that we are called to be nothing less than you in the lives of the people near us and the lives of the people most in need and closest at hand. We're called to be the day that is approaching, but God, let us hear that and feel that rightly. God, don't let us be like Eli. Like, let us recognize your life as light and live in that light. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.